Good afternoon, and welcome to Calvary's Way, a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. Calvary's Way, recorded live at Calvary Chapel, is a Bible study taught by Pastor Gib Allen. Today in our study of the book of Daniel, we come to chapter 10, verse 15. Once again, as you get your Bibles, the book of Daniel, chapter 10, verse 15. Last time we saw Daniel receive a vision of the future and of the pre-incarnate Christ. Seeing the vision, Daniel was awestruck and he fell to his face. An angel appeared to Daniel and told him that he would explain the future events that the vision foretold. We will see what happens next as we resume our study in Daniel chapter 10, verse 15. Verse 15, when he had spoken such words to me, I turned my face toward the ground and became speechless. And suddenly, one having the likeness of the sons of men touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke, saying to him who stood before me, My Lord. Now the Hebrew word is donai, not donai. Donai is deity. Donai means respect. More literally, it would be sir. Sir, because of the vision, my sorrows have overwhelmed me, and I have retained no strength. For how can this servant of my Lord talk with you, my Lord? As for me... No strength remains in me now, nor is any breath left in me. Then again, the one having the likeness of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly beloved, fear not. Peace be to you. Be strong. Yes, be strong. So when he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? And now I must return to fight with the prince of Persia. And when I have gone forth, indeed, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is noted in the scripture of truth. No one upholds me against these except Michael, your prince. The angel had to return to fight against the prince of Persia. And it's interesting that he also knew that the Greek empire was going to be raised up after the Medo-Persian empire. Now notice that the angel says, verse 21, No one beholds me against these except Michael, your prince. Now we learned before that Michael is one of the chief princes. Now we see that Michael is your prince. In other words, Michael is the angelic authority over the people of the nation of Israel. On earth, Israel seemed lowly and weak, but in the heavens, Israel had the mightiest representative of all. No one upholds me against these except Michael, your prince. It was just the two of them. The angel did not count Daniel as standing with them. Now today there is a movement that is going on. It's been going on since the early 80s. And it's called the Spiritual Warfare Movement. It is a wind of doctrine. It's the idea of territorial demons, and they tell you that you need to know and identify the demons of your particular city so that you can wage war for your territory. That is bogus. There is not one shred of scriptural directive for that anywhere. And unfortunately, this fire has been fueled by such books as This Present Darkness and its sequels by Frank Peretti. Now, they are interesting books, but they are fiction, and he admits it. In his books, he has Christians waging war against hordes of demons, and they're taking over towns and taking over schools, taking over churches. And these Christians bind up the names of these demons, and they wage a huge war. 
They are interesting books, but they are fiction. He made them up. And it is a sad day when Christians start taking their theology from fiction rather than from the Bible. In contrast to Peretti's book, here in chapter 10, where we get this political demon and this activity, this war takes place in heaven, not on earth. There are two angels, one demon, no humans involved. Remember that. I mean, when there was a problem, God didn't say, Daniel, get busy and bind this devil. No, God sent the Terminator, the Archangel Michael. And that's how the job was taken care of. But you know, unfortunately, today it is a common practice among Christians to bind the devil and to rebuke demons. But you do not see this happening in Scripture at all. And to infer from this chapter that we can assume the role of Michael and the angels and start waging war is absolutely not called for in the Scriptures. Well, what do you do then with the devil? Well, if you want the devil to get away from you, simply practice the spiritual warfare technique that James taught us. James 4, 7. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, it doesn't excite the imagination that much, doesn't sell a lot of books, but it is a solid scriptural principle that always works. Now, don't get me wrong. There is absolutely a spiritual battle going on that we are involved in. And the Apostle Paul tells us how to wage it. Paul told the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 3, listen to what he said. He said, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, that is, they are not worldly, but are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Now, what is a stronghold? The word for stronghold is a word that means a fortress. It is a military word that refers to an area where the enemy is entrenched. In spiritual terms, it means an area of your life where the devil, our enemy, has found a weakness in your spiritual defenses and he has erected an outpost, a fort, a stronghold. A stronghold may be obsession. It may be a fixation of thought or some deep-set attitude or thought patterns that keeps you from experiencing spiritual victory. It may be an unreasonable fear. It may be worry. It may be temper. It may be hate or lust, or aggression, or unrestrained urges and appetites. But the nature of a stronghold isn't nearly as important as how you can demolish it and pull it down. And we are told in this verse that we have spiritual weapons that are mighty to pull down strongholds. And the definitive chapter in the Bible on spiritual warfare tells us what the weapons are. Let's turn there. Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Beginning with verse 10, the Apostle Paul says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, 
and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. To wage spiritual warfare effectively, you don't need to engage the devil in hand-to-hand combat. You don't need to speak to demons or name spirits. You fight it on your own plane of existence. And the way to do it is to be defensively armed with a life marked with truth, a life marked with righteousness, being prepared with the gospel of peace, walking in faith, having salvation. And the offensive weapon that you have to fight with is not a prayer of binding Satan. It's not anointing oil to pour around your house. It is the word of God. Now, when you realize that, then you understand that the entire Bible speaks about spiritual warfare because the entire Bible speaks about how you're supposed to be living your life righteously and close to God. But possibly the greatest weapon of all is in verse 18. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. That's what Daniel did. Let's go back to Daniel 10 now and look once again at Daniel's prayer life. Look at the beginning of verse 13. It says, But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. Since the angel was dispatched immediately, and Daniel's period of prayer and self-denial was 21 days, we see that the answer to the prayer was delayed by the prince of the kingdom of Persia. The correlation between Daniel's time of self-denial and his prayer and the duration of the battle between the angels and the prince of the kingdom of Persia establishes a link between Daniel's prayer and the angel's victory. Since the angel's victory came on the 21st day, we can surmise that if Daniel would have stopped praying on the 20th day, that the answer would not have come. Archer says this in his commentary, and I quote, There may be hindering factors of which a praying Christian knows nothing as he wonders why the answers to his request are delayed. Nevertheless, he is to keep on praying. It may be that he will not receive an answer because he has given up on the 20th day when he should have persisted to the 21st day. End quote. Daniel's prayer didn't stop until the answer came. Daniel didn't just pray one time and say, well, there, I've done my duty. I've talked to God about this problem. No, he kept on praying in faith for three weeks. He prayed on, knocking at heaven's door. For three weeks, he petitioned God, wrestling and agonizing and weeping and waiting, all of the time, totally unaware of the battle that was raging somewhere in the unseen realm of the heavens. Daniel experienced a delay because Satan's forces fought against the answer to his prayer. If Daniel's persistence in prayer had not outlasted the period of delay, he would have been defeated. The deciding factor was his perseverance and his determination to keep on praying until the answer came. And the reason that the Bible tells us to persist in prayer is not to somehow overcome God's reluctance, but it is to teach us to have perseverance. And it is to help us to prevail against Satan's opposition. I'm convinced too many of us stop praying before we should. We think just because we haven't gotten an instant answer that it's not God's will somehow, and so we stop praying. That is not the biblical way of praying. We are told to pray and to keep praying. Jesus said in Luke 18:1, men always ought to pray and not lose heart. When Jesus taught his disciples about prayer, he used a present tense verb that signified a continuous action. We read that verse earlier in our scripture reading, Matthew 7, 7, and it should be translated this way. Ask, 
and keep on asking, and it will be given to you. Seek and keep on seeking, and you will find. Knock and keep on knocking, and the door will be open to you. Is there some area in your life in which you have stopped praying because you haven't gotten an answer? Why did you stop praying? Delays are not denials. Daniel prayed for three straight weeks. And the reason for the delay was that there was something going on in the spiritual realm he didn't know anything about. I mean, he wouldn't have known about it unless God revealed it. And he did, specifically, to him. You pray for loved ones and you get discouraged because they have not come to Christ. If you only knew the warfare that is being waged for their souls in heavenly places. So keep at it. Don't fade. Don't give up. Don't get weary. Keep bringing them before the Lord. Now, chapter 11 is information Daniel received in chapter 10 that made him sick when he saw it. I mean, he mourned. He didn't need anything for three weeks because chapter 11 unfolds a nightmare of warfare that would happen as he looked into the prophetic future. And if you were to outline Daniel 11, it would be very simple. It would go like this. Conflicts of the past and conflicts of the future. That is the outline of Daniel 11. Verses 1 through 35 tell you all about conflicts of the past from our perspective. In other words, in 2002, they have all been fulfilled. The first 35 verses of this chapter deal with world events that would occur about 500 years before Jesus was born. For Daniel, writing in 530 B.C., it was prophecy. But for us today, it is history. Chapter 11, verses 36 to the end, is yet future. They are conflicts yet to come. They will be fulfilled during the tribulation, the seven-year tribulation, with the Antichrist. So here we go. Daniel is receiving this prophecy from an angel, probably Gabriel, and he tells Daniel in verse 1, after telling him of the spiritual warfare in chapter 10, how he fought spiritual forces with Michael the prince, he says in verse 1, Also, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I, even I, stood up to confirm and strengthen him. So he is now just finishing that portion of spiritual warfare. And then the prophecy begins in verses 2 through 4, regarding the Persian and the Greek wars. And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than them all. By his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. And sure enough, there were four more kings of Persia. The fourth one is Xerxes I. He is the king written about in the book of Esther. He was very, very wealthy. And what happened was is that he stirred himself up against the Greeks because the Greeks had defeated his father, at the famous Battle of Marathon. This was where the messenger ran the 26 miles from the scene of the battle back home, passed on the message of victory, and then he died. And of course, this is the background of why today we have marathon races, 26-mile marathon races, which are very famous in Olympic Games. Now, Xerxes had the mightiest army that had ever been assembled up to that time. He had two million men. He had the greatest fleets of ships that had ever been put together. But somebody came along and conquered him. Verse 3 says, Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion, and do according to his will. And when he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided into the four winds of heaven, but not among his posterity, nor according to his dominion with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be uprooted, even for others besides these. This mighty king that would stand up is Alexander the Great. Now, we've already talked about him at length in our previous studies in Daniel. 
After his death, there was no posterity. In other words, there were no heirs to take the throne. But he did have descendants. And one of his generals, Cassander, murdered all of them. Murdered his mother, his brother, his infant son, and his wife. He also had a stepbrother and an illegitimate son. Cassander murdered all of them. So there was no royal bloodline to follow Alexander, just as Daniel had prophesied that the kingdom would not go to his descendants. Now, as we have seen before, Alexander's kingdom was divided among four generals. And there's an indication. In fact, it's prophesied here in verse 4. It says that his kingdom will be broken up and divided toward the four winds of heaven. Now, two of those, Ptolemy and Seleucus, will continue to be the topic in the next few verses here in chapter 11. All of this occurred precisely as the angel predicted through Daniel. Now, in verses 5 through 20, we have the conflict between the north and the south. That is, Egypt and Syria. Now, this is not talking about a civil war like we had in which the north and the south fought each other. But from the perspective of Israel, the kingdom of the north was Syria under the control of Seleucus and his descendants. And the kingdom of the south was Egypt under Ptolemy's reign and those which followed him. So for almost 300 years, these two kingdoms fought each other and poor Israel was right in the middle. They were in the crossfire. They were in the war zone. When Egypt attacked Syria, they had to go through Israel. When Syria attacked Egypt, they had to go through Israel. So Israel's between the hammer and the anvil, so to speak, getting pounded by king after king, battle after battle for almost 300 years. History confirms the accuracy of the predictions Daniel gives about this ongoing conflict. Now, when you study the history books, it almost reads like a modern soap opera. For instance, look at verses 6 and 7. And at the end of some years, they shall join forces. For the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the power of her authority, and neither he nor his authority shall stand. But she shall be given up with those who brought her, and with him who begot her, and with him who strengthened her in those times. But from a branch of her roots, one shall arise in his place, who shall come with an army, enter the fortress of the king of the north, and deal with them and prevail. Now, history tells us that this Egyptian-Syrian alliance took place in 250 B.C. But here's the rest of the story. Ptolemy II offered to give his daughter Bernice to the grandson of Seleucus, whose name was Antiochus. The only thing is, is that her daddy, Ptolemy II, demanded that Antiochus first divorce his first wife, Laodice, which Antiochus did. Of course, this made Laodice angry. I mean, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. However, after only two years of marriage, Bernice's daddy died back in Egypt, so Antiochus quickly remarried Laodice, declared that Bernice would be just one of his concubines. Well, Laodice was very upset about this. She carried a mighty grudge toward her husband because he had ditched her for this younger Bernice. Soon after their remarriage, she, that is Laodice, poisoned Antiochus and killed Bernice, her child, and her entourage. Meanwhile, back in Egypt, Bernice's brother has become the new king, and when he hears of his sister's murder, he invades Syria, kills Laodice, and beats up on Syria. I told you it sounded like a soap opera. But all of this happened exactly as Daniel prophesied. The soap opera continues because 60 years later, the king of Syria tried to do the same thing. In 190 BC, Antiochus III gave his daughter Cleopatra to the Egyptian king Ptolemy V. Now, this was the first Egyptian queen named Cleopatra. The famous Cleopatra, who consorted with Mark Antony and Julius Caesar, was a descendant and was actually Cleopatra VII. 
But when the first Cleopatra got to Egypt, instead of influencing her husband towards Syria, and of course that was the point of the marriages, she fell in love truly with her husband. So she then became a supporter of Egypt. Look at verse 16 to see how Daniel predicted this. But he who comes against him shall do according to his own will, and no one shall stand against him. He shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his power. The glorious land is the promised land, the nation that we call Israel. They had the power to destroy it. Now, what is the king of the north going to do? Verse 17 says, He shall also set his face to enter with the strength of his whole kingdom and upright ones with him. Thus shall he do. And he shall give him the daughter of women, that is Cleopatra, to destroy it. But she shall not stand with him or be for him. She stayed faithful to her husband and not to her father. Historians footnote every one of the details here to be exactly as God's word has given them 400 years before they happened. Bible prophecy is wonderful. Now, in verses 21 through 35, we come to the third part of this historical section. And it's about our old friend Antiochus Epiphanes. We met him as the little horn in Daniel chapter 8. Now, why does the Bible spend so much time with this guy? Well, it does so because it is a literal picture of one who is yet to come, the Antichrist. And we get a little idea of what the Antichrist is going to be like. Though history doesn't say a lot about Antiochus IV, the Bible has a lot to say about him because of his impact upon Israel and is a picture of the coming Antichrist. All of this regarding Antiochus is fulfilled between the Old and the New Testament. Those 400 silent years, as they were called, is when all of this happened with Antiochus IV. Verse 21, And in his place shall arise a vile person, to whom they will not give the honor of royalty. In other words, he was not supposed to be in a place of royalty or leadership. The nephew was, but the nephew died in Rome. He illegally took over the throne. So what happens? It says, But he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom, that is Israel, by intrigue. And he did that. Look at verse 25. He shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south, that's Egypt, with a great army. And the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a very great and mighty army. But he shall not stand, for they shall devise plans against him. Yes, those who eat of the portion of his delicacies shall destroy him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. This is the invasion and the victory of Egypt, the king of the south. Look at verse 27. This sounds very modern. Both these kings' hearts shall be bent on evil, and they shall speak lies at the same table. Now, if that doesn't sound like a modern peace conference, I don't know what does. Did you know that in the last 3,100 years, 8,000 formal signed peace treaties have been broken? I mean, we just cannot maintain peace. They shall speak lies at the same table, but it shall not prosper for the end will still be at the appointed time. Verse 28, While returning to his land with great riches, his heart shall be moved against the holy covenant, so he shall do damage and return to his own land. After he overtook Egypt, he was on his way home to Syria. He heard about a riot that was taking place in Jerusalem, so he stopped there, he put out the riot, and he desecrated the temple just for kicks. Exactly what it says in verse 28. Then in arrogance, he turned back south to invade once again. Look at verse 29. At the appointed time, he shall return and go toward the south. But it shall not be like the former or the latter, for ships from Cyprus shall come against him. 
Once again, history confirms the accuracy of this prophecy. In 170 BC, Antiochus led his mighty army against Alexandria, Egypt. The king of Egypt, knowing that he was outnumbered, had appealed to Rome for assistance. And the commander, his name was Populus, he arrived in Alexandria by ship before Antiochus, and his army met Antiochus four miles outside the city. Populus showed Antiochus a letter from the Roman Senate commanding him to return to Syria. Arrogant Antiochus read it with disgust, and he asked for time to consider that demand. Well, Populus took his sword then, and he drew a circle around both of them, and they were both standing in it, and Populus said to him, and I quote, Sir, you make up your mind before we both leave this circle. You will either withdraw, or the Roman Empire and all of her might will come upon you and all your armies. Well, Antiochus Epiphanes knew that the Roman government was more than he could handle, so he made up his mind, and he said, we will withdraw. But he was very angry and embarrassed about what had happened. So humiliated, Antiochus turned, and he left with his army, but on the way back, he took his anger and his rage out upon Jerusalem. He turns around and moves his army, in verse 30, says, Therefore he shall be grieved and return in rage against the Holy Covenant, that's the nation of Israel, and do damage. So he shall return and shall regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant, and forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress, that is the temple. Then they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. He put up an idol of Zeus in the temple where God was to be worshipped, telling the people that all of them had to worship Zeus. He had a pig killed on the altar. He sprinkled the blood and all the pig's juices throughout the temple. And this was the first abomination of desolation. It was so horrific, so abominable an act, that the faithful Jewish priests deserted the temple. It was left desolate. He put harlots in the temple. He made it a capital offense to have a copy of the scriptures to circumcise their children, to keep the feasts, and to keep the Sabbath days. Those who do wickedly against the covenant he shall corrupt with flattery. But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. And those of the people who understand shall instruct many. Yet for many days they shall fall by sword and flame, by captivity and plundering. Those who were faithful to God you know what happened to them? 80,000 Jews were slaughtered. They were assassinated. 40,000 were shipped off into slavery. Antiochus Epiphanes was a madman. Well, he died a horrible death, and he passed off the scene. Some say that he died insane. This is remarkable. 135 predictions within 35 verses historically documented. It is absolutely amazing. It is precise. We hope you have enjoyed today's edition of Calvary's Way with Gib Allen. Thanks again for listening, and we do hope you will join us again tomorrow as Pastor Gib teaches and we learn to walk Calvary's Way.